Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Stanislas Daan is a French author and cognitive neuroscientist, the director of the Cognitive Neuroimaging Unit in Sacre, France, and the professor of experimental cognitive psychology at the Collège de France. His new book is called How We Learn, Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine for Now. In it, Professor Dayan explains the most recent scientific advances in understanding the brain's remarkable learning abilities, the importance of brain plasticity, and the revolution in artificial intelligence. He analyzes how learning works and offers some key principles that we can all apply that will have a direct impact on our learning speed. His book is published by Viking, and I'm very pleased that it brings Stanislav Dayan to our show now. Welcome. Hello. The subtitle of your book is Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine for Now. Just for now? In what way is the human brain superior to machines and uh, are the machines catching up? Well, as many other people, I'm very impressed by the capacities of machines nowadays. Uh, I've been extraordinarily impressed, for instance, by the capacities of machines to win the game of Go and actually to learn it from scratch, or almost from scratch. But uh, in my book, I make the argument that uh, from the point of view of cognitive science, uh, we know that the brain still does much better. And I don't mean by that that it's impossible in principle to develop an artificial intelligence. That's why I say for now, I think maybe in 20 years we'll have solved more problems. But um, I still see many ways in which uh, even a young baby, uh, I'm arguing in the book, is already superior to any of the uh, current neural networks or other artificial intelligence devices that we have. Um, So there are several ways in which the human brain is superior. Uh, One is uh, the way it economizes on the data. Um, it's, uh, you know that a large part of the artificial intelligence revolution is due to the fact that we have big data. In fact, many, th- many people think that these terms are synonymous, big data and artificial intelligence. Um, it's not quite true, but it's true that uh, the machines need an extraordinary amount of data to train themselves, whereas we can show that a little baby will learn language, for instance, with uh, quite minimal input. Um, A few hundreds of hours of input uh, suffices for a baby to converge, first on the vowels and the consonants, and then on the lexicon and the syntax, the grammar of language, in ways that we cannot mimic at the moment. But but wasn't it assumed not all that long ago that computers could never win against human chess champions? Um, And uh, that's changed. What what happened? Yes, sure. the, The amount of progress is very impressive. And uh, in the case of the game of Go, I think it's even more impressive than chess. In the case of chess, it was really due to speed of exploring a big tree. Um, In the case of the game of Go, it's really the computer developed some kind of intuition of how uh, the setup of the game looks like and which moves should be uh, better uh, without even analyzing all of the possibilities, but just based on some kind of feeling of analyzing the game. so these, you know, these are very significant advances. And if we compare the current uh, artificial neural networks to the brain, we find that they model quite well how we recognize a board of a game, but also a face or maybe an object. Uh, they model quite well what ha- happens in the first, let's say, quarter of a second uh, in the brain. 
And, you know, that's already quite an achievement, how we recognize a face, for instance. Um, but there's a lot more in the human brain in particular. We are able to reason way beyond this first quarter of a second to apply what we call top-down knowledge, you know, hypothesis that we apply to the external world. And uh, I claim that in the human brain, even scientific hypothesis, we all apply a sort of hypothesis testing to the external world. Even a baby does that. The baby is already a scientist in the crib, as another colleague said. And uh, this this sort of top-down questioning of the external world, we're not very good at modeling at the moment. You define learning as forming an internal model of the outside world. Can you expand on that idea? Yes. Uh, many internal models, actually. Sorry? Does it physically, does learning physically change the brain in ways that scientists can measure? Absolutely. These are, in fact, uh, extremely uh, important physical changes, even though they are small, but we can even pick them up with MRI. So what I mean by this internal model is that we carry in our minds um, a sort of um, yeah, model of the external world. Uh, we can close our eyes, for instance, and imagine our apartments, or we can uh, imagine a dialogue with a friend. And we do that to the extreme, to the utmost, uh, when we dream. When we dream, we are just lying there, but the brain generates this entire scene all by itself, and it can be extremely realistic. So it means that we have a sort of generative model in the head. And physically speaking, yes, it means that there have been microscopic changes, but quite measurable changes uh, in the brain that led to the internalization of the external world. What was outside is now inside our heads. Now, in the, in the 17th century, John Locke called the infant's mind a blank slate which sounds reasonable, but you're confident that that isn't true? Are we, are we already born with things through our DNA? Much of my book, How We Learn, is, is very much uh, on this point, really. Uh, we know that infants are extraordinarily gifted already. They are gifted with knowledge, and they are also gifted with a genetically uh, endowed uh, learning algorithm. So uh, let me give you an example. We know that uh, infants do number. They can recognize that there's a certain number of objects in the outside world, uh, and whether it's three or two. Uh, but they can, they can also use these numbers to uh, have a sense of probability. So if you imagine that there is an urn in front of the child, and we are talking really about babies of a few months of age, uh, and in this urn there are three green objects and there's one yellow one, and then an object comes out, if it's the yellow one, uh, the babies are surprised because they thought that it was much more likely to be the green one. And how long they look is a direct function of how unlikely it was to get a certain event. So they are sensitive to probability, they're sensitive to uh, the physical possibility uh, of uh, some objects. For instance, if they see an object uh, drop from a table and it actually stays in the air, after a certain age, they are surprised. Uh, this knowledge is both a combination of innate abilities, what we call core knowledge, and an incredible ability to learn from a few examples. Are all of the relevant circuits uh, and their connections in place at birth? 
Um, the, all of the large-scale ones, yes. So all of the so-called long-distance uh, fibers that connect different brain areas, we can measure them. In fact, in my lab, that's what we do. My wife and I, we scan a lot of uh, young children. Uh, we were some of the pioneers of this using uh, you know, magnetic resonance imaging. And so if you scan a young child at birth or even uh, you know, maybe uh, before birth or in premature children, you see that uh, the organization is very much that of an organized uh, brain, much like an adult brain uh, from the start. By this, I do not mean that all of the connections are fully organized. What we know is that the terminals which change, and that occurs at the scale of a few millimeters or maybe one centimeter. So the large scale organization is genetically determined, just like the shape of your hand is genetically determined. You have five fingers and that's it. But uh, the details will change in the brain. Yeah. And so it's really uh, 100% genome and 100% uh, learning, 100% nature and 100% nurture, I think. It's are a combination. Babies, are babies even a few hours old already able to recognize faces or stylized face shapes? Uh, is this a reason that uh, some people feel it's really important for a child to bond with its mother? There is really a, in the brain a system that attracts the baby to faces. And that's, that's an interesting example because it's, it's a good example of the combination of innateness and learning. So there is a, apparently a dedicated device that attracts us to any shape that has uh, two shapes on the top and another one on the bottom, like a, like a cartoon face. And uh, there are even experiments that suggest that this is done in utero. Even before birth, the baby already recognizes this sort of shape. Now, this will attract the baby, it will orient his gaze and his head, and this will allow him to learn more. And so there is another system in the cortex, in the, in the two hemispheres, that learns then to recognize faces and assigns them very specific neurons in the cortex. And uh, this comes uh, very early indeed. So, for instance, uh, babies already are attracted to their mother's face more, more than to strangers uh, in the first few months of life. At what age can babies distinguish between animate and inanimate objects? That's another thing which is extremely early, actually. Uh, I can't tell you an age uh, directly, but I think it's in the few, first year of life that they do this sort of distinction. They know what an object is, and they make a distinction between objects uh, that are just submitted to the laws of physics versus people, uh, animals, that are animated from inside. So what is called self-propelled objects. Um, and so if they see something which starts moving by itself, uh, they treat it as a person or an animal, and immediately they start attaching to that uh, additional properties. This thing has an intention. This thing wants to get to a goal, uh, and so on and so forth. So in a sense, they have a sort of innate psychology as well as an innate physics, and uh, with uh, different systems for, uh, for these two uh, different domains. Now, you are uh, going against some things that have been accepted for a while. For example, the Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget believed that young children cannot grasp the abstract concept of numbers. But uh, you say they uh, develop a rather early understanding of mathematics. Can they recognize approximate numbers without counting? Uh, that's been much of my research has been dedicated to this point. Yes, uh, there is a number sense. That was actually the title of a previous book. Um, that is to say, um, babies can recognize a concrete, what we call numerosity, uh, a concrete quantity uh, of the set of objects. Um, so if they see one, they know it's different from two. 
If they see two, they know it's different from three. Beyond that, it gets fuzzier. So they may find that, that there is a difference between, let's say, four and 12. Uh, and that will depend on age, the precision of that system. Babies will never distinguish 11 from 12. That's too uh, precise. But they have this approximate number sense. And they also have, for small numbers, they have a precise notion of one, two, and three at the very least. Uh, and that system, as far as we know, is innate. It's present almost right from the start, as far as we can measure. Uh, we find it in finding many animal species, not just humans. Uh, it's present in all sorts of species, including crows, for instance, which are quite far from us. Um, and so we believe that uh, this is part of our genetic endowment. What's very interesting is that it seems that we keep using the very same brain areas for number sense, even when we learn mathematics. So only humans will learn that uh, 11 plus 3 is 14. That, however, takes place still in the same areas. It looks as if we can recycle some of these brain areas that are given to us by our genetic endowment, by our evolution, but we can redirect them to a higher level of function, including uh, very abstract mathematics. So you uh, experiment, uh, you find these things out through brain scans and MRIs. Um, are there any risks to administering an MRI to an infant? What's the youngest uh, baby whose brain you've you've scanned? Uh, we have scanned the two months olds, uh, but um, we think that MRI is pretty safe, almost completely safe. Uh, the magnetic field itself is apparently completely innocuous, and you know there is a, a lot of research on this topic for about 30 years now, at the very least. Uh, the only danger uh, that there is is, uh, on the one hand, the noise, because it's a pretty noisy machine, so we have all sorts of devices to protect the baby from the noise. I don't like and, that noise um, either. Sorry? I don't like that noise either. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty noisy. And uh, it's beep, 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 beep. And, you know, but uh, so we give uh, babies special uh, headphones that they have to wear and we protect them. We also have active noise protection in the scanner these days. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, you want to avoid metallic objects. So we screen the parents, we screen the children. And uh, aside from that, it's really very safe. We have very good experience with uh, actually training also older children in a mock scanner so they, they get first to see that it's innocuous. So it's quite easy with modern machines to get excellent brain data these days from, from young children. And uh, one thing that I can say is they, they are not against it. The young babies could be against it by crying, which they do sometimes, then we just uh, mm -hmm. don't do the experiment or stop it. And the older baby, uh, children, you know, we know we like it because they like to come back. They, they enjoy the science also around these experiments. We show them their brains. We we now these days we do 3D printouts of their brains, so they each leave the lab with their own brain. It's pretty fascinating to see your own brain. I'm speaking with Stanislas Dan, uh, whose latest book is How We Learn: Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine. For now, published by Viking. This is Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York, 99.5. Uh, what part of the baby's brain activates first, and does the sequence after the first activation follow some kind of fixed order? Hmm. There is a lot of organization indeed. Um, so uh, you have to imagine that each sensory modality 
vision, touch, audition, has its own uh, cortical region in the brain, which we call the primary sensory cortices. So there is a region, for instance, if you present a sentence to the baby, uh, there is a region uh, that uh, cares about audition that activates first. But then uh, we find that it's not the only thing that activates in the baby. And there is a whole chain of processing which is being launched, which is actually very similar to the adult brain. So, for instance, if it is speech, it will be channeled to the left hemisphere, which in most of us is responsible for language processing. And it will go to the exact same sort of language areas that we find in the adult brain. Um, we have learned so much about the baby's brain. You know, it's, uh, this has changed completely our ideas. There were some pediatricians not so long ago who thought that the cortex was not active at birth. That's false. Hmm. The cortex is very active. Then there were others who saw that the frontal lobes, you know, the anterior part of the brain, the ones that are more involved in abstract thinking, would not be online until a long time. That's false too. Uh, we see it in two months old, they're already activating a frontal lobe. So the whole brain seemed to be already at work in the task of learning. Well, two-month-old babies don't understand what you're saying to them. How are we able to learn how they process spoken language? Yeah, so we see the areas activating, but uh, we don't think that they're already, of course, know, knowing the, the words and the grammar. Um, Do they we respond get... to tone, for example, when you yes. speak softly to them or perhaps louder? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the very first thing that comes uh, is the ability to process the melody of language. And that's really exactly at birth. Uh, uh, we have some experiments, for instance, that show that babies pick up the, the melody of their language, the prosody, and they will use it to tell whether they're listening to their mother tongue or to a foreign language. They can distinguish, for instance, French from Russian uh, for French babies. Um, that's all based on the melody, the hum which you probably learned in utero already before birth. And then during the, the first year, they will learn, uh, first of all, the vowels of their language and uh, then the consonants. And that's when they begin to specialize for a particular language. So at the end of the first year of life, they already know that some uh, consonants are not being used in their language. Uh, so maybe in, uh, in English, uh, you know that you are not using the U that we use in French. Uh, um, and uh, so uh, American babies by about six months of age, they already lose the ability to attend to this particular uh, consonant or vowel, sorry. Uh, likewise, this is the, the moment where uh, Japanese babies stop making the discrimination between R and L. And so what we hear is a very clear difference, they no longer hear. And that's why we begin to have a foreign accent. So learning starts extremely early in life. So we have to un, we have to learn the the Japanese have to learn uh, the difference between the R and the L. Uh, uh, not really, actually. It's a bit. They have to unlearn because the funny thing is that the baby is able to hear all of these differences at the beginning, but you unlearn that there is a difference. Uh, this is another indication that there is a lot of uh, nature in the system. Nurture, in this case, is selecting which contrast you're not going to use in your language. Hmm. At, at what age does a child's brain stop growing in size? Uh, 
Oof, it's quite late. In fact, it's a rather characteristic of the human species uh, that uh, we have this extraordinarily long uh, childhood. Uh, so we see changes in brain size, I think, until the beginning of adolescence, but we also continue to see a lot of plastic changes even way into adolescence. And uh, of course, the adult brain also remains plastic to a lesser degree, right? So there is a sweet spot for plasticity early on, but uh, humans are also extraordinarily special amongst other mammals in this ex very extended period of brain plasticity. And, and it keeps on changing through adolescence uh, into uh, young adulthood. Absolutely. That's why sometimes uh, mental uh, illness suddenly occurs uh, kind of late teens and early 20s. Yes, there is probably a relation, for instance, schizophrenia uh, is often appearing in this period, although we believe that there are probably precursor signs. So already some aspects of development are going wrong before that period. But uh, it's true that even adolescence is still an extraordinary period of change in the brain. The peak period of change, however, is way before that. It's more like uh, between one year and two years. Uh, you have to consider that at this moment, uh, one or two years, uh, the child's brain really has uh, enormously more plasticity, but also because it has enormously more synapses. We estimate that there is almost twice as many synapses at this moment uh, compared to the adult brain. Uh -huh. uh, so, you know, synapses are the points of contact between neurons. They are the communication highways. And again, learning will consist in selecting from this initial uh, enormous growth which synapses are most useful. And do we keep on losing those synapses as we get older? Uh, so we lose, we lose, we lose all the way into adolescence. Uh, and uh, after that, the plastic changes involve both growth as well as loss. It's not just loss, of course, it's both a large amount of growth and some selection. So you imagine constant waves of growth followed by selection in a sort of Darwinian algorithm, selection algorithm inside the brain. What are the implications of the fact that the frontal lobe is the last part of the brain to develop? Well, it's interesting. It's, uh, so the sensory areas develop first, and we think that's useful for the brain because essentially it stabilizes the external world. Uh, we could not learn about the external world if there was not a stable input into the system. So the frontal lobes, on the other hand, they are at the other extreme. They are the highest level where we learn to reason, think about the meaning of a text, the whole information in working memory. And so uh, these aspects are the ones that require uh, the slowest development. This means that they are still trainable after a long time and they are still fragile as well after a long time. Uh, this is why we have an extended period of school. Uh, the education system is a unique invention of the human species. We don't find education in any other species. We've, you can see that our education is precisely targeted to these moments where we have uh, extraordinary plasticity in the brain. Now, so should we, if we want to learn a foreign language, should we try to learn it earlier than uh, um, at least my school's schooling uh, did? I started learning a foreign language when I was already uh, 13 or so uh, because uh, that was one of the courses given in junior high school. Should I have been taught a foreign language right from the start? 
Probably. I mean, I'm, I, I'm I mean, sure at the edge of 13, you were still plastic. <laughs> but uh, what the evidence suggests is that the earlier you learn, the better you'll be at the end. Uh, we now have a rather extraordinary data on this topic. There is an experiment that was published uh, by uh, Steve Pinker and his colleagues in Harvard, where they have uh, several millions of people that took the test on the Internet. And so what they see is that second language abilities for grammar for syntax, decrease first slowly through the years uh, uh, of childhood and then quite suddenly around the period of puberty. And so, uh, yeah, even in the first years of life, there is already a decrement if you start learning at the age of three compared to if you start learning at the age of two of one. And that decrement really accelerates massively around the, 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 the teenage years, let's say. And it doesn't um, confuse the child to have more than one language because languages uh, can really vary a lot. Uh, some languages, the verb is at the end of the sentence, and others, it's right at the beginning of the sentence. Yeah, it's true, but it seems that the baby's brain is not confused at all. It sorts out the languages, and uh, the babies are already able to attribute one language to a particular speaker. Huh. So they know that this particular person you know, speaks Russian, mm -hmm. and they will not confuse the languages. It seems to be only beneficial to be bilingual. In the 2004 movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, Kate Winslet uh, plays a character who undergoes a, a procedure to erase memories of her former boyfriend, Jim Carrey. Is the possibility of selectively erasing memories from someone's brain completely science fiction? Uh, it's coming now. I mean, I don't think we could erase a language. That would be, you know, the, the, our knowledge of language is distributed in so many circuits in probably hundreds of millions of neurons. So that would be impossible. But there are some experiments now that begin to erase or tamper with uh, episodic memories, which at the beginning at least are concentrated in a structure called the hippocampus. It's a particular brain structure that has the sort of shape of, a, of the animal, the hippocampus, in both hemispheres. Years. And uh, there are some experiments in mice. Uh, of course, this is not done at all in humans, and I don't think it would be mm. ethical or feasible to do it in humans. But in mice, you uh, know how to interfere with brain activity at just the right moment in just the right way so as to erase a particular memory or to impose one. Uh, and we and, can uh, tell that whether a mouse has, has lost a memory or had one imposed? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So, for instance, here is one experiment. Uh, you, you know that, uh, you may know that uh, the places that the animal knows are encoded in its brain. That's another example of these mental models that we were talking about. So, if the animal is in room A or in room B, different neurons are firing. And uh, they, this is so reliable that if you just look at the neurons, you can tell whether the animal is in room A or is in room B. Or rather, you can tell whether he thinks that he's in room A or he's in room B. So you can even fool these neurons, okay? So now here's an experiment. You let the animal sleep. During sleep, these neurons will fire a little bit, okay? When they fire for the room B, when the neurons that code for room B fire, you trigger the dopamine system, which is the reward system of the brain, okay? And you can do that even for a precise location inside room B, okay? So you are, in a sense, teaching something, imposing something to the brain. You're saying to the brain there is a reward at this particular location, except the animal has not been to this location. There's never been physical reward, just, you know, stimulation of the brain. You wake up the animal, and the animal goes straight 
to that location, directly to that location, as if it was expecting a reward. So you've changed its mental representation of the uh, meaning of that particular location. You've imposed a memory. Why is paying attention your first suggestion to make our brains more effective? Uh, and is alertness uh, a form of attention? Uh, well, these are wonderful questions. So yes, in, in the second part of the book, I try to extract from what we know about neuroscience uh, and learning, what are the basic principles? So I call them the four pillars of learning. And attention is the first one, because I think attention is the essential filter for learning. What happens is that uh, our brain has a problem. It has limited resources and it is bombarded with an enormous uh, amount of information that it could potentially learn, but it doesn't have enough resources to treat them all. So attention is the selective filter that will uh, tell our brain, okay, this information is important. I'm going to amplify it. It may be very small on my, my retina. It may be one particular word on a page, but by paying attention to it, I amplify this information and I bring it all the way to, uh, for instance, the prefrontal cortex, where it's going to be processed for, uh, you know, rational analysis. Now, that also means that all of the other things that could have been the focus of our attention are going to be neglected. And when I say neglected, I mean, it's a huge effect. So you may be totally blind to what you're not attending. Uh, do you know about the experiment of the invisible gorilla? I was going to ask you about it. <laughs> it's, a, it's become a very famous experiment. It's just an example, but uh, it's, it's an experiment where you make people blind to the fact that there is a gorilla on stage in front of them. What you do is you ask them to count uh, the number of passes of a basketball team, and the basketball team is dressed in white, and the gorilla is in, is in black, and there are other black players, so you're not attending to the black players. You're missing the, the invisible gorilla, it becomes invisible. So this has become a symbol experiment, but there are many like that, to show that when we pay attention to uh, one thing, we lose the ability, at least temporarily, to uh, become aware and to learn about other aspects. The important part relative to learning is that the amount of learning depends very much on where we are attending. And so it's a message for teachers as well, or for parents. Be sure to orient the attention of the pupil or the child to the proper level, the one that you would like uh, the children to attend. And when they say, I do not see, treat it seriously, because it could be very real, you know, just like the invisible gorilla. So when a child in a math classroom says, I do not see what you mean, you know, this could be literally because his attention is not oriented to the proper level. Is this the same kind of inattention that causes traffic accidents? Absolutely. So uh, the recommendation not to use your cell phone when you're driving is, uh, you know, an important one because we could be completely blind. Uh, there have been experiments where people, for instance, land a plane and because they are distracted by the conversation with the control tower, uh, they land their plane on top of another one that they have not seen. You know, and these are professional pilots. Uh, so we all can be subject to lapses of attention because we are distracted by something else. And I'm afraid distraction is one of the major problems of our society today, you know, with cell phones distracting us all the time. So uh, we have to learn to concentrate and schools have to teach children how to concentrate. Uh, in the book, I give very practical recommendations to, for instance, I found this research, which was, I thought, quite illuminating, showing that if the classroom is too decorated, 
Then the children are distracted and learning is less efficient. So this ends up with very practical recommendations. Don't let distraction invade uh, the pupils in a classroom. I want to uh, talk a bit more about that uh, in just a moment. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, non-commercial listener-sponsored radio at 99.5 FM. My guest is Stanislas Dahn. Come along if you can. Come along if you dare. Take a ride to the land inside of your mind. Beyond the seas of God. Beyond the realm of what. Across the streams of hopes and dreams where things are really not. Come along if you can. My guest on Leonard Lopez at Large today is Stanislas Dan, uh, spelled D-E-H-A-E-N-E. He is a professor of experimental cognitive psychology at the College de, Collège de France, and uh, his latest book is How We Learn, Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine for Now. It's published by Viking. I want to return to what you were talking about. Uh, many people are thought to be good at multitasking because of their familiarity with technology. Is that, in fact, true? Ah, no, it's very interesting. We all have this illusion that we can multitask. And uh, in uh, the majority of cases, it's just an illusion. Because we are attending to A, we don't see that there is uh, another stimulus B that we could be attending. We are literally blind to it. So we are not aware that we are not aware. And we are unconscious to our own unconsciousness when we try to do multitasking. In fact, uh, laboratory experiments show that whenever you do one task, the other tasks are delayed. The one exception to that is if you fully automatize something. So during car driving, a lot of the driving is automatized. Therefore, you can attend to, uh, let's say, a conversation on the radio. But uh, as soon as you have to do something non-automatic, like attending to a traffic accident, then you find that you cannot do two things at once. You have to stop uh, talking to your partner, for instance. So really, the brain has this central bottleneck. This is a large part of the prefrontal cortex, a bottleneck that prevents us from attending to two things at once. And uh, we're, we're unaware that we are slowing down when, when we try to do these two tasks simultaneously? Absolutely. So uh, it's very simple because we are only aware of what we are attending at this, you know, high stage of attention. So when we concentrate on one thing, we are simply unaware that other things may be waiting and they could be delayed uh, unless they pass through our attention and attract our attention. And then the whole thing switches and then we attend to B, but we are no longer doing the task A. So it's really a flip-flop system, a central bottleneck. And don't tell me that, you know, the new generation, they are, they are multitaskers because they've been trained to do it. This is really a central limit of every human brain. Uh, it's not something that's different between men and women or that the new generation is going to be better at. It's a, really a, a limitation that is really basic to the architecture of our brains. 
You said that uh, an overly decorated classroom can keep children from concentrating. Don't we need to know what to pay attention to? Uh, what is is over decoration the most common distraction that prevents children from learning? Well, you know, it's one of the uh, factors. Uh, what's important to understand is that children children's attention is in large part driven by where other people attend. And this is, again, something that's quite particular to the human brain. Uh, a message also for my book is that uh, the human brain has a number of devices that are quite unique and make it really the learning species by excellence. Um, so human babies will be attracted to where other people attend. Uh, this is called attention sharing. Uh, so, for instance, a child who is hearing a new word will first attend to the mother, for instance, who might have uttered this word, and look at her eyes very carefully, find where she is looking, turn to that location so that there is shared attention to the same place. And only then will the child learn the world. The word. In this sense, uh, learning is completely driven by social attention. And for teachers, again, there is an important message. Your whole body attitude, your whole attention is determining whether children will know where to attend. And that will in turn have a huge effect on the learning. Now, my dog seems to know a fair amount of words. Is he really capable <laughs> of learning language? I, there are experiments on that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's not language at large, but there are some real experiments showing that some dogs can learn 200 words and do so in a way which is not completely unrelated to what uh, humans do. It's just a form of memory, of course, so there is no syntax whatsoever. And again, that's a super important difference between the human brain and other brains. We have a sense of a structure. And that shows a lot in language. We are the only species who can string words together in a grammar, in a syntax, in a recursive manner, you know, with embedded sentences inside sentences. No other species does that, and the dogs don't do that. But they may just know a few words. What about gorillas and chimps who uh, learn to use sign language? How close are they to comprehending what we would call human language? <laughs> it's debated. And it's a great topic for further research. But uh, again, uh, the evidence that I've seen so far does not suggest that they have a grammar lacus. Yes, they learn some words or they can learn some token symbols, uh, most likely. So people have used, uh, you know, plastic tokens in different shapes uh, and they can be used to refer in a sort of arbitrary manner to objects. So that's the first criterion. Ferdinand de Saussure, a linguist, had this criterion of the arbitrariness of the sign. Well, they have this criterion for language. They can learn arbitrary signs and attach them to objects. What they don't do, or don't seem to do easily at the very least, is to combine multiple signs in order to create a sentence. That's where really uh, they crash down completely. And this is where the human brain excels. We are extraordinarily efficient in combining multiple symbols to express, to express complex meanings. I think we have a sort of formula in our minds and we learn formulas rather than uh, you know, specific facts. So we have much more abstract learning in the human species. That's also one way in which our learning is much more efficient. And those, we learn to read through symbols, but are there anatomical differences between people who speak and read Western language and, and, and those uh, whose languages correspond more to ideograms? Ha. Well, the, the first thing is to realize that 
people who have learned to read are different from people who have not learned to read. So that's a major change in the brain that we have studied a lot in the lab. We have scanned some people who are illiterate, uh, simply having never been to school, you know, not having had a chance to go to school when they were young. And we have compared their brains uh, with the, those of people who have learned to read either the alphabet or uh, also ideograms. And so the major difference is between readers and non-readers. There is an entire reading circuit that is very well mapped in the brain at the moment and that we see light up in anybody who has learned to read, always at the same location, uh, and that does not light up if you have not learned to read. And this even leads to um, changes in the anatomy. So there are some uh, connections of the brain that are stronger, and this is visible with MR, with magnetic resonance. We see that they are stronger in people who have learned to read compared to non-readers. Now, you were asking about, you know, Chinese reading versus uh, alphabet reading. Uh, that's uh, actually a small difference. There are a few differences. There's a little bit more bilateral processing of Chinese, so the two hemispheres are a little bit more involved. But by and large, it's the same general circuit that we are all using to learn to read. Would we be able to even understand much of this if uh, MRI hadn't been invented? <laughs> I think we made enormous progress. You know, it's a miracle. I started my career only doing psychology uh, and we used pencil and paper and we used, uh, you know, the behavior of people clicking buttons. That was it. Uh, we could study the brain through lesions. So I studied a lot of patients with brain lesions that lost a certain ability. And this taught us a lot about specific areas that if you have a lesion, you lose language or if you lose another lesion, you may lose the ability to calculate. But I was very gross. And then uh, brain imaging was invented and the whole brain became transparent and we got used to it. And now we can do extraordinarily fine experiments where we decode the meaning of one particular word or we detect whether a person has seen a two or a three just by looking inside their brains. I find it extraordinary. Why is active engagement a necessary component of learning? And does hmm. it need to be a physical activity? Ah, so, so this is my second pillar of learning. Uh, the I'm first one was attention. Hello. The second one is uh, uh, active engagement. Mm -hmm. I hope you can still hear me. I hear you fine. Oh, great. Um, so active engagement, what I mean by that is the brain is generating hypotheses. You have a brain which is actively engaged in the process of trying to understand the materials, generating hypotheses that will, are going to be selected according to the feedback that the brain receives. So, no, this is not physical activity. I sometimes get misunderstood. Uh, there are some, I remember a teacher who was very proud of having understood my book, and he said, you know, I equipped a whole classroom with bikes so that people could bike while they are doing mathematics. That's not what I mean by active engagement. Really, we're talking about brain activity, anticipating and trying to project hypotheses. So there are many ways in which uh, this can happen in the classroom, typically uh, small groups where everybody participates, the teacher asking questions from the children, and so on and so forth. So this is active traditional engagement. lectures not the best approach to teaching? So there is actually nice research on this question, and uh, it's true that uh, just uh, lecturing is not the best way. Uh, actually, it's very important for the brain to test itself. So just listening or just reading, looking at the textbook, is not the most efficient way to learn. What's efficient is first to study, of course, but then to test yourself. 
And this could be because someone is asking you questions, or you could do it alone by having flashcards, but you know, not getting the answer immediately, testing yourself. So there is beautiful research um, showing that if you have two hours uh, of learning, you should really alternate 15 minutes of studying, 15 minutes of testing yourself, 15 minutes of studying, 15 minutes of testing. This is the best way, even though in the end, there is less studying and more testing, but the test is actually part of the learning itself. It's commonly believed that each student has his or her own preferred learning style. Some, some are primarily visual learners, others auditory, auditory or hands-on. Should education be tailored to students' favorite mode of knowledge acquisition? No, <laughs> this is actually uh, one of my favorite uh, so-called neuro myths. Yeah. Uh, that is to say, uh, things that people areas. believe, but they are just not true. Uh, so uh, we used to believe that for some time, but in fact, what is true is that the human brain is much more universal uh, than we used to think. And so, no, we are not so different from each other. Uh, and in fact, the strategies that work the best for one person are also going to work the best for another. So, for instance, in this case, we all learn words better if we see at the same time as we hear. So multimodal input is better for everybody than just having the spoken word or just having the written word. But some of my classmates were better at math and science while I was better at art and reading. Wouldn't that suggest that uh, there was something uh, that had to do with the structure of, of our brains? Well, sure. So that's different, right? It's not the same as saying that they were just uh, more spoken types or visual types or auditory types and so on. Um, no, of course, uh, there are differences between people in the speed of acquisition. And there, there is also measurable difference in the size of brain areas. And that can translate into advantages in the speed of learning. There's also differences in the size of the connection. So I'm not saying that we are all identical, just that we have the same plan. The plan of the brain, the human brain, is characteristic, and we all have the same gross plan, but we have some quantitative differences. Right. And then, of course, you have to consider that, again, nature and nurture are totally intertwined. So maybe your, uh, you know, your friends that were slightly better in math, maybe they already got some different inputs early on. There is a lot of evidence that even very early uh, games, for instance, can put children on the right track for mathematics. Uh, there's beautiful research showing that if you play board games, simple board games like snakes and ladders, early on, you're already uh, better off in mathematics. You know, you're on the better path. And uh, there are nice correlations, not perfect correlations. Nothing is deterministic. There's, there's always a possibility of further learning. But, you know, uh, you are starting in life with a slightly better chance of being a mathematician when you start with uh, games like that. Why does mathematics in particular create anxiety in, in a student who fails to master it quickly? And well, I think because in schools we are using math mathematics to select children. And it's true. I mean, it's an authentic syndrome that has been described. It's very unfortunate because uh, mathematics can be great fun. But for some children, it is really a source of extraordinary anxiety, really paralyzing them. And what we've learned at the brain level is that stress can uh, prevent learning almost completely, uh, in even in animal models. So uh, there is a very practical consequence to this. We must absolutely have a school system which uh, avoids creating this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy 
the stress leads to low learning, leads to more stress, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, we need to avoid sources of punishment. So even though I mentioned earlier that we should get error feedback, it's important that the child generates hypotheses and gets corrected about which are right and which are wrong. This error feedback is not punishment. Punishment is negative, creates stress, and prevents learning. What we must have is precise feedback, factual feedback, that tells the child that this particular response was wrong so that it can be corrected. And aren't mistakes an integral part of the learning process? I mean, totally. I mean, there's no learning without making errors. Uh, Think of, I don't know, I learned to windsurf. People who learn to windsurf, they have to suffer through many hours of just falling in the water, you know, and that's just normal part of the process. So think of learning music. There's no child that starts off, you know, pulling a perfect uh, G on the, on the violin. Uh, you have to uh, make errors. This is the absolutely normal aspect of learning. So we need to de-emphasize the punishment. You, you, you say hunters improve their second shot based on analysis of the first unsuccessful shot. So this is exactly how the brain does it. This is a very general algorithm. It's also how many neural networks uh, work in the computer these days. Uh, The system will generate an answer, and then uh, the brain will compare this answer with the correct one and generate what we call an error signal, the difference between these two. So imagine that you are shooting at a target. You take a shot, you miss uh, the bullseye by some centimeters, you use that difference, the error, to correct. You can use the sign of this error and the size of this error to correct uh, and uh, have a better shot the second time. This is exactly how it works in the brain. So if we look at brain signals, they uh, are in fact, in many cases, error signals that propagate from one area to the next and each area is correcting the other. This is a way that the brain converges to a correct response. But it means that error signals are the most banal thing of the world, you know. They are needed in order to uh, learn. Is there any substitute for testing in order to determine if we've mastered new information? Well, testing is, I think, the simplest and easiest way uh, not only to verify that something has been learned, but even to improve the learning itself. Because when you test, you also give feedback. This is the key. And uh, by getting the feedback alone, you already uh, are getting a lot of correction. So uh, it's very important to understand that studying is not the best way to learn. In fact, there's beautiful research showing that the students, you know, who spend all their time in the textbook coloring line by line or underlining particular information. Uh, that's big loss of time, most of the cases. It's useful at the beginning, but then uh, you must move on to testing yourself. And it also... Uh means that you can't resell the book usually um, now, <laughs> that's true now uh, you mentioned that our brain is very active uh, while we're asleep is it helpful to study just before bedtime yes and uh, you know this is perhaps one of the most important chapters of the book because i think it's not so well known but sleep is an absolutely essential part of the learning process we learn when we sleep We don't learn novel things, but we learn to consolidate what we've learned uh, during the day. And so if we uh, revise something during the day, and especially just before going to sleep, it's going to be replayed in our brains uh, during the night. So we have the impression of resting, 
but it's not true at all of the brain. The brain unconsciously practices, rehearses, and the next morning, uh, what we knew a little bit, we know much better. We have consolidated the knowledge. And sometimes we even make discoveries uh, during the night. And do dreams play a role in that? Well, to some extent, this is what dreams are. They are a replay uh, uh, of a sort of model of the external reality. But uh, to be very concrete, I mean, this replay has been measured in animals, literally speaking. You can record from, let's say, a few tens of neurons in a rat or a mouse, and you see these neurons reactivating during the night in the exact same order in which they were active during the day. So if the animal was going through a maze, for instance, this creates a particular trajectory of activation of the neurons. You know, one by one, they will activate for different locations. You go to, uh, you put the animal to sleep or you let him sleep and you look at the same neurons, they reactivate in the exact same order. The one difference is that they do it much faster, sometimes 20 times faster, which means that the brain is compressing the information and is able to play it hundreds of times during the night much faster than life. So this is one way that the brain has to expand the information from what it has learned in one day to replay it many more times and to consolidate, to essentially automatize what was learned during the day. Are there ways to increase the learning that takes place during sleep? Some people listen to tapes. Ah, so that's different because when you listen to tapes, you're trying to uh, learn something new. And in fact, the brain shuts down most of its sensory system during the night. That's why you can sleep even if there's a little bit of noise. So uh, most of the evidence that I know suggests that tapes are totally inefficient. You are not going to learn something new from the tapes. However, you can bias your sleep. And so that's a little bit different. You can, for instance, deepen your sleep. Uh, there are devices that play the sounds of waves. And there are some devices that even synchronize these sounds with your brain waves. So there is a slow sound which corresponds to the slowness of the brain waves during sleep. And there are experiments suggesting that this has a real effect. If you deepen your sleep, you have more learning. Why do schools continue to ignore sleep patterns of teenagers by starting classes early in the morning? Wouldn't it be better for them to start a little later in the day and classes to go later in the day? Absolutely. And that's a little bit unfortunate that we have this rigid school system. There are now some very nice experiments. I need to explain a little bit more. It, it's known that the sleep cycles shift a little bit during the adolescence. And so, in fact, we all know that adolescents have trouble uh, going to sleep uh, in the evening and they have trouble getting up in the morning. It's not their fault, you know. It's the biology. It's something completely universal throughout the planet. Uh, the, the phase of sleep shifts a little bit. And so experiments have been done in which you adapt the school system to that and the results are extraordinary. Uh, this has been done in Seattle recently. There's been a big experiment in Seattle. You shift uh, the school entry by about half an hour or maybe one hour. This is a small change, but it has a big impact on the grades of the children, uh, the way they, they remain at school, uh, their well-being, even their health, their obesity. This has an enormous impact, apparently. So this is something we should all do, but it takes some time to you know, change this sort of complex system of schooling. Do you think that uh, the uh, that access to smartphones and other devices is negatively affecting sleep patterns? 
I, I think there is some evidence for that, especially when they are used just before going to sleep. Uh, I think it depends very much on the type of activity. You know, you can read a quiet novel or listen to quiet music on your cell phone. So I don't think we should demonize the, the cell phone as it is. We should really think about the specific activity. What can parents and teachers do to make children better learners? Hmm. Well, there's lots of things. Uh, so we've mentioned attention. We've mentioned being active in the learning, so developing curiosity. This is super important. Uh, getting good feedback in a positive but, uh, you know, error-correcting manner. Uh, the consolidation through sleep. I would add to that the creation of a safe but uh, enriched environment. So um, I think some children nowadays are being deprived, and this, of course, this concerns maybe certain segments of society, but um, it's extremely important, especially for young children, to have access to physical objects. This is what's preparing their mental model of physics and mathematics, but also to language. And we have quite a lot of evidence that some children are deprived of proper language, and uh, there are already huge differences in the amount of language that children will have heard at the age of two or three. This has the direct impact on the brain. We can see it. We see that the, that the connections of the language areas of the brain are stronger in those children who have uh, heard more uh, words. And so it's a key factor in the later development of reading, for instance. We can already predict, to some extent, the reading scores of children from uh, the vocabulary that they have at the age of three. Now, we're pretty much so, out of time, so I do want to ask you one more question. What about sure. uh, learning tips for adult learners? After all, uh, people go to grad school uh, uh, and... <laughs> some of the things they learn can have to do with uh, keeping other people alive. Yes, it's absolutely essential. You know, the learning algorithm is actually the same throughout life, so these principles apply uh, to a large extent. I think I would tell them especially to learn to attend uh, and uh, learn to concentrate their attention for a short amount of time but not be distracted because I think this is something that we have lost to some extent in the past 20 years with all of the stimulation that we have. Turn off your cell phone. Uh, don't get these automatic email alerts. Learn to concentrate for a short period and then test yourself. And by testing yourself, you can see if it has been efficient or not. And you say humor helps. Uh, my great thanks to you for being on our show. Uh, I've been speaking with Stanislas Daan, uh, a French author, a cognitive neuroscientist whose latest book is How We Learn, Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine for Now. It's published in the U.S. by Viking. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Deborah Freeman, who produce this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can leave comments on all of those places. Uh, we hope you'll join us tomorrow when Cedric L. Alexander will talk about his new book, In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Uh, so we'll see you then, I hope. And we also hope that you'll do your part to help keep WBI financially secure. 
Uh, one way to do that is by becoming a BAI buddy, and you can do that by going to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. If you can become a BAI buddy, a sustaining member of the station for $10 or $15 or $20 or whatever you can afford or uh, a month, really will help us. It helps us to plan for the future. It helps us pay our bills. So, uh, and it helps keep shows like this on the air. So we hope you will call right now, 516-620-3602. Or go to WBAI.org and follow the instructions.